Welcome to Indie Reads Aloud, a storytelling podcast with your host, Diana Catherine Plopa. Come gather round, grab a snack, and listen to a story. Each week, we'll feature a new indie author with a story to tell. There are no long-winded interviews, no sales pitches, just stories. Most of the stories we'll tell will be family-friendly, but if they're not, you'll get fair warning before the reading begins. If you want to hear more, investigate the story notes for links to the author and where to buy their books. You can find us at dkpwriter.com. And now, sit back, relax, and listen to a story. Welcome back, everybody. If you are joining us in the middle of this series of readings, you might want to go back, subscribe, and find the other two. Today, Kathleen Casca is returning to read book three for us in her Sydney Lockhart mystery series. This is a, a cozy mystery series. And all of these stories take place at historic hotels, which I think is a phenomenal thing. Um, so often in series work, we as authors try to find a particular thing that knits these stories together. And I think you've done a great job finding these hotels. So I, I, well done, Kathleen. I'm really, I, I think it's a, sometimes it's difficult for us to find how series works together. Um, and right. I, I think you've really found a, a neat niche here. Thanks. <laughs> it's definitely um, a lot of fun. Yeah. So um, you also write another series, mystery series, the Kate Carraway Animal Rights Mystery Series. I know you've already read from that series for us in the past, but I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that series so that um, people who are coming in to listen to you read from this series, um, maybe they'll learn something new about what else you write. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, the Kate Carraway series, I actually started writing before the Sydney Lockhart series. Um, and it's a cozy, but it's, I would like, I like to call it a suspenseful cozy. Okay. It's set in current times and it, my protagonist is an animal rights activist. And when I lived in Austin, I worked for, uh, I volunteered for an organization called Wildlife Rescue. And we would take in orphaned and injured animals and rehab them with the hope of sending them back out into the wild. That's really great work. Yeah, it was. And I thought, you know, it would be fun to write a mystery that had a cause. Yes. You know, and so this is what I decided to do. I thought, okay, my character is going to, each book is going to deal with a different animal rights issue because animal rights is important to me. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a very cool thing. Again, trying to find a way to knit a series of books together so that they're connected yet stand alone um, unto themselves is a really, I think it's a hard thing to do. It's one of the reasons... I haven't written series yet is because 
connecting several books just seems like a daunting task to me. <laughs> it's on my list of things to do, but I haven't gotten there yet. So tell me about Murder at the Galvez. Um, first of all, tell me about this hotel and why it's special to you. The Galvez Hotel was built after the big great storm, which occurred in 1900. Uh, it took a while to clean up the island and build the seawall. And the year the seawall was completed was the year the Galvez Hotel was completed. So it's a grand hotel right on the Gulf of Mexico. And I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, my husband's from Galveston, so we've spent a lot of time on the island. The Galvez Hotel, I have to I have to say, it's been remodeled several times, but the last remodel took place about two years ago, and the place is absolutely stunning. I mean, I, I go to Texas just so I could just stay there for a few days. <laughs> You know, it's it's beautiful. And the and the island is just it's got a the island's got a notorious past, you okay. know. It's there are a lot of characters there. And I got to to hear all these stories about the characters that used to live on the island from uh, my husband and his brother who still lives there. So I wanted to set my third book at the Galvez Hotel. It's, it's just like one of my favorite places ever. So what's the time period for this book? Early 1950s. Okay. So in keeping with the others. Yes. Yes. About the same time period. Um, what did you find was the most difficult part about writing this particular story? I wanted to find something that was actually happening on the island at the time that I'm writing it because I wanted to take a real story and weave it into this mystery that I was writing. I wanted hmm. to take a, a conflicting event that was happening on the island and I couldn't find anything right off the bat. And so um, I just kept doing some research, reading some old newspapers, and I already decided that my character, Sydney, is going to be there on another writing assignment. She hasn't yet gotten into the world of becoming a private detective, but all the events in her life are leading her in that direction, especially in this book. Okay. So she's there on a writing assignment, and um, she's there to, dis to um, report on a controversial development project that was going on and so I thought okay well maybe I'll look for something like that and I found it during the time I'm writing there was a very controversial project going on on the island with the development of a little nearby island called Pelican Island and so I took that and wove it into the we wove it into the mystery what would we authors do without google searches <laughs> oh, I, know. I know yeah yeah i am really excited to hear this third installment in the sydney lockhart mystery series when you are ready please take the microphone and read aloud okay i will i would like to say that in this book sydney's whole family gets involved her entire family so you really get a feel for why she's the way she is awesome 
While my grandfather, Popo, was alive, he worked as a doorman at the Galvis Hotel on the seawall in Galveston. He wore a dark maroon coat trimmed in black cording, which hung down past his knees, and he proudly donned a cap with HG stitched on the brim with golden thread. Whenever my family came to the island for a visit, I'd make a beeline to the hotel and stand with him while he greeted guests. People who saw us together knew in an instant that I was his granddaughter. We were cut from the same mold, tall, thin, redheaded. I was proud of that fact, for James Robert Lockhart was the most handsome man I'd ever seen. When I found him, crumbled on the floor in the hotel foyer, his body ridden with bullet holes, I knew my life would never be the same. And now, as I step into the lobby, 18 years later, the memory of that day hit me in the gut. My name is Sydney Jean Lockhart. I'm 30, single, and I recently tossed aside a perfectly fine career as a science teacher to try and make a go of it in a man's world. The year is 1953, and I'm the first female reporter hired by the Austin American. After my last assignment covering a political powwow in Palacios, Texas, turned into an expose on murder and scandal and deception of which I was a surviving victim, my opportunities as a journalist have escalated. My editor, Ernest Turney, learned of my connections with the island and asked me to write a piece on a polit another political situation, one brewing in Galveston. At first I hesitated. The event was to be held at the Galvez Hotel. My reluctance was not only because my grandfather had been murdered at the hotel, but because Galveston was where my parents had chosen to live and my father had retired. Okay, so she's at the hotel. She doesn't, she's trying to stay out of sight of her parents. <laughs> she doesn't want them to know that she's there. Of course, that doesn't happen. And this is further on in the book. She's investigating a couple of murders have already occurred. I woke to a son well up and ready already into business of warming the day and to Ruth well into a late morning dream. The phone rang and I snatched up the receiver and pulled the phone into the bathroom to keep from waking her. It was Marcella calling to report. Although she hadn't been successful getting dad to talk, she did manage to get him released on bail. I told her I'd be over later. Then I dressed quietly and left. I grab a cup of coffee and decide to stay to pay the slippery Mr. Fallow another visit. To keep Mr. Fallow from noticing my car and scurrying out the back door, I parked a couple of blocks away. The open sign was still there, but the place was deserted. I took the opportunity to snoop. The shop was crowded with more than a dozen concrete tanks with hoses trailing out in all directions. I peered into one and was surprised to see it empty of any fish life. Dank water, 
with a fine layer of algae growing up the side. I looked in the next one, empty too, and so was the third. The fourth house, a few sad-looking minnows. Maybe there had been a recent surge in the demand of, for bait, but I doubted it. I stepped to the back of the shop and opened the ice box. Inside were four containers of night crawlers. Brewster Fallow was not getting rich selling bait, that was for sure. I checked out the counter and saw he had returned after Marcella and I had left. A half-eaten bologna sandwich set on a chip plate next to a cup of coffee. I felt the cup. It was warm. I poked the sandwich. The bread was soft. Whatever had distracted Fallow from his lunch had happened only a short while ago. The cash register drawer was half opened. I counted four dollars and some change. Then I heard the back door squeak open and close again. Mr. Fallow, I called. Brewster? I walked to the rear of the shop and pushed open the screen door. An old Ford was parked in the driveway. Anyone here? I called. No one answered. So I went back inside to wait. Maybe he had to run a quick errand. Or maybe, as Marcella had said, I had spooked him again. I continued my inspection of the tanks. And when I peered into the last one, I knew for certain that waiting for Fallow to return was a waste of time. I hurried out the door and into my car, and I was out of the neighborhood in a flash. I was sure that Brewster Fallow didn't accidentally stumble into his own fish tank and drown, judging by the bloody water in the hole in his skull. I was also certain that whoever had left through the back door was the killer. I drove to the Pleasure Pier and parked on the seawall. The seagulls were out in number and squawking their eerie sound, a sound I enjoyed more than any other. For me, it was a mixture of innocence and pleasure, along with a bit of melancholy thrown in at the last second. When I was little, I often thought the gulls were calling to me to join them for a flight over the beach, only to feel sad I didn't sprout wings and take flight. That's what I felt like doing now, catching the vortex of a whooping crane flock and migrating to Canada. Only it was two months early for the birds northern flight. The cranes weren't going anywhere, and fortunately, neither was I. The stench of dead bait from Fallow's bait shop still lingered in my nasal passages. I walked out onto the pier, inhaled the salt air, and listened to the gulls and the sound of my heels tapping on the wooden planks, hoping my racing heart would not explode in my chest. Except for a few fishermen, the place was uncomfortably quiet. The fog had become heavy, wrapping me in a blanket of light mist. I could no longer see the end of the pier, and all of a sudden, I felt too vulnerable for my own good. Even the seagulls had stopped calling, or maybe they left to find a better stretch of beach. I pulled my jacket around me, leaned against the rail, and tried to fit this new puzzle piece into the insane events that now dominated my life. Whoever killed Fallow must have done so only minutes before I had arrived and had been in the back of the shop when I walked in.
I'm lucky he didn't kill me too. When I fled the shop, I intended to drive straight to the police station and find Detective Fidalgo. But I couldn't steer my car in that direction. Being connected to one dead body was enough. However, if I didn't report the murder, Fallow could lie in that fish tank for days before anyone found him. I was certain the man who killed Rollin was probably the same guy who plugged Fallow. Delaying the report would only make the situation worse for everyone, especially Dad. I lingered a bit longer, rehearsing in my mind what I would tell Fallow. The wind picked up, creaking the old pier. Someone coughed. In the distance, I heard footsteps. I turned, but couldn't see a damn thing through the fog. I was not the kind of person who had premonitions. That was Ruth's department. But I felt at that moment as if I as if, as if something was wrong, very, very wrong. I listened for the clang of bait buckets and fishing gear to go with the steps. But whoever was strolling in the fog was not there to cast a line. Then the footsteps stopped. And for a moment, all I heard was a slow, gentle wash of the waves. They seemed to crest and hang for a moment before falling as if they weren't sure they wanted to be here either. Someone could easily toss me over the rail and no one would know until my body washed up on the beach. The footsteps sounded again. This time distinctly, I distinctly heard two footfalls, one near and one in the distance. I usually think of myself as a relatively intelligent person, but at the moment I felt void of all mental prowess. I'd given the killer a perfect opportunity to do me in. He had probably followed, followed me from Fallow's shop. I slipped off my shoes and crept back toward the seawall. The footsteps in the distance picked up pace. Then I heard an unmistakable sound from the person closest to me. It was a click of a gun safety release. I froze. The shot split inches from my head. Another shot rang out, and this one from a different gun. The guy nearest to me turned and ran. A shuffle ensued, and for a moment I considered jumping over the pier rail, but I wasn't sure if I was over water or sand. Suddenly someone grabbed my arm. Don't scream. Keep walking and don't say a word. We walked together in silence until we reached the seawall. Headlights of the cars driving down Seawall Boulevard illuminated the streets, causing the mist to turn yellow like sparklers dancing through the air. He opened the door and pushed me in, and then came around to the driver's side. Once the doors were locked, he grabbed me and pulled me over. What the hell are you doing here? My heart raced. Keeping you alive, hun. What else? Dixon kept me from saying anything else by planting his lips on mine. Ooh, and the introduction of a love interest. Yes. That's always fun. <laughs> um, what was your favorite or most distinctive part about Sydney in this story? What changed about her um, in this story that made you say, okay, this is, this is going someplace interesting. And, and, and I think this might really be a thing. What, what was that part of her that made you figure that out? Well, this was like the 
third time she's had to investigate murders. Mm-hmm. And Ralph Dixon, she meets in the very first book. She doesn't plan on seeing him again. He's a Hot Springs detective for the Hot Springs Police Department. But he's very been very persistent in the last few books. And he continues to show up. And there's a, a, an attraction between the two of them. So this time, she finally decides, okay, I'll work with this guy, you know? I'm in such deep shit that I need to, I, I need, I need some help. Sure. And so she decides to let him help her in this situation. Um, and then, and I don't mind, I'm not really giving much away because you know, she's going to become a detective, but at the end of the book, when the crime is solved, he said, you know, Sydney, you're re- you're really good at this. You know, you're, I think this is your calling. And uh, he said, this is something you need to face. This is something that you're meant to do. And so she agrees. And at that point, he tells her that they need to work together. So he he's a mixture character, love interest and mentor simultaneously. Exactly. He is. He is. And he's a little bit older than she is. And um, he's got his feet firmly planted on the ground, whereas she doesn't. So okay. he's a good anchor for her. Sure. Uh, and so at the end of the book, he says, you know, I've left the police department and we're going to work together. So. Very cool. I love happily ever after endings. <laughs> That's awesome. And cozy mysteries kind of require that as well. So, yes. Very cool. Thank you so much for reading this third book in the installment of the Sydney Lockhart Mystery Series. Everybody, if you're enjoying this, be sure to subscribe on both Spotify and YouTube and come back for installment number four coming up in the next few weeks. Thank you again, Kathleen. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Indie Reads Aloud Radio. We hope you'll join us again next week for another story. If you're an indie author and you'd like to share your story with us, visit our website at dkpwriter.com to sign up and read aloud.